I want to introduce to you a man that probably needs no introduction here at the Bible Chapel. Tunch Oaken played in the NFL for 14 years, 13 years with the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was an all-pro tackle uh, for the Steelers. Right after he retired, we asked him to come and be a part of our youth ministry, to lead our youth ministry. And he did that and did a fantastic job during that time. Uh, many individuals are walking with Christ today in a significant way because of Tunch's uh, impact uh, that he had on them during their young formative years. Six years there, we asked him if he would become our uh, pastor of men's ministry. And uh, Tunch and I were looking at each other earlier because 10 years, that happened 10 years ago, and that's hard to believe. But he has done a fantastic job at leading our men's ministry. So I want you to welcome pastor of the Bible Chapel's men's ministry, Tunch Ilkin. Well, it's great to be with you guys today. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Did you feel like you should say that? I mean, in our culture today, we have made the Super Bowl almost like a holiday. So here's my question. Uh, throughout the course of this week, how many of you guys had conversations that went something like this? Where are you going for the Super Bowl? What are you going to serve for the Super Bowl? Who are you rooting for the Super Bowl? So I'm going to ask you guys, just out of curiosity, how many New England Patriot fans do we have here? Raise your hand. Come on, loud and proud. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Not, 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 is it Deflategate? Is it Spygate? Is it Belichick? What, what is, uh, just out of curiosity, I mean, they're a good football team. All right, how about, uh, how many Seattle Seahawks fans do we have here? Oh, so how many guys are not watching the game? You know, I, I, it's kind of funny you say that because I, 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 people have been asking me out in the, uh, in, in the uh, corridor, told you who's going to win, who are you pulling for? Well, I can't pull for the Patriots because if, if they win, that means Belichick and Brady tie Chuck Knoll and Terry Bradshaw for four Super Bowls. I can't root for them. But I'm looking at the Seahawks, and outside of uh, Russell Wilson, there is nobody on that team that I like. <laughs> so I can't root for them. So this is what I'm going to do. I am going to root for the best commercial today, <laughs> and I'm still going to watch the Super Bowl. So we've been doing these Friendship Sundays uh, Super Bowl weekend, except when the Steelers are in the Super Bowl, then we do it the weekend after. And I, I've brought a lot of friends in, and sometimes Ron, Ron and I have uh, done the service. And, you know what's great about our congregation, and I've been at this church since 1987. It is a great church if you are uh, a visitor, and I always tell people I've been part of a small church, a medium church, and a large church. It's all been here. And I'm uh, uh, just very thankful. There's great people, and, and I love the way we lock arms as a Christian community. And what I love about that is people are not shy about giving me advice on who I should bring. Like all the guys in our men's ministry keep reminding me that since I have not ever played in a Super Bowl, on Super Bowl Sunday, I should bring in a buddy who has. And not that I'm sensitive, but, you know, Steelers won four Super Bowls. I got here, we became average. They went back to a Super Bowl after I retired. Not that I'm sensitive about that. <laughs> Someone just reminded me out in the, in the, uh, in the foyer. I said, hey, might as well give me a paper cut and pour lemon juice all over it. But anyways, and then, and then Ron always has these suggestions because when we first started doing this, I was bringing mostly linemen. And he, and, and he says to me, he goes, he goes, Bill, can you bring in a skilled athlete for a change? <laughs> he says, all these big, ugly friends of yours. He goes, bring us an athlete. 
So I got a guy from uh, JT Thomas who played in, uh, in all the Super Bowls uh, of the 1970s. He is an athlete, a cornerback and a safety, 4440 guy, great basketball player, great athlete. And then our executive pastor, Scott Arvey, he jumps in. He says, Touch, this year, bring in someone with historical significance. <laughs> historical significance? It's football. And then I said, wait a second, I got that because this is the 40th anniversary of Super Bowl IX. And uh, JT Thomas, uh, of course, played in Super Bowl IX. And JT is, a, is, a, is a, really a dear friend and teammate. I played two years with him. Uh, they used to call him the Reverend because he always carried a Bible with him. And uh, uh, JT, although very athletic and a great corner and safety, he was a big hitter. As a matter of fact, one of the biggest hits I've ever seen. I've been covering, I've been in the National Football League since 1980. One of the biggest hits I've ever seen was JT. I mean, he lit a guy up, knocked him out, hit him so hard that his helmet went through the guy's forehead and cut him, gashed 16 stitches, blood everywhere. The problem was, it was a teammate of his, Dwayne Woodruff. <laughs> I mean, our trainer, Ralph Berlin, came out there. He saw the blood passed out. Uh, and uh, just wanted you to know, big hitter. And also, I just want to say this, too. Also, one, another buddy of mine who's got suited. we got two guys here that have Super Bowl bling. Uh, and I'm neither. Uh, JT and Rob McCole's here, too, over there. So if you want to see Super Bowl rings, JT's here, too. Or, uh, Rob McCole's here. Please welcome Super Bowl champion, JT Thomas. Uh, good morning. First, I'd like to thank Ron and Touch for inviting me here. And um, I'd like to share something. Touch probably heard a couple of things he didn't know that was floating around about him. Uh, when Touch first came to the Steelers, um, Dwight White, uh, my former roommate, Dwight is the guy that probably named every guy every nickname that you had. Uh, Swanee, Fast, Mean Joe, you know, uh, Brad, Hammer, you know, uh, The Rep. Dwight gave you a name. When, when Tunch got here, Dwight said, why did they draft him? You know? He said, he, like, he doesn't like a football player. And so Dwight said, that's a wasted draft choice. So wow. then, but anyway, about two weeks later in the training camp, we land in bed. He said, man, you know the dude, Tunch, that funny name. You know, Ilky. I said, no, Ilkins, you know. Uh, He's nasty. And he said, he already got a nickname, Tunch. So we don't have to change his name, you know. But I want to let Tunch know that, you know, Dwight was talking about it, and Dwight confirmed him. And obviously, you know, as you know, went on and played a number of years and an all-pro himself. Like I said, I'm just glad to be here. And um, I just want to just thank my brother for inviting me, definitely. Great to be with you. <laughs> Yeah, I've been asked that question a lot. Didn't your parents like it? Why'd they name you Tunch? <laughs> I come to this country to play American football. That's what got Dwight thinking. <laughs> That's right. I, I kill you, Dwight. And he, <laughs> he didn't know how to take that. So w when you're watching that, uh, you know, I love the old highlights. Um, and and when, when, I, when I watch them, sometimes I think, man, that, did, I really, was that, did that really happen? And then sometimes the memories are so vivid that it seems like yesterday. How about when you watch it, what goes through your mind? Uh, you know, for me, um, football game, football was never love. It's something I did. It was, a, it was, I guess, a means to some type of end. At the time, I had no idea what the end was going to be, but it kind of falls in that line with your 
your first bicycle, your first roller skates, your cap guns. Uh, it was something I did and uh, that I was blessed to do, but never intended to do. Right. Yeah, right. it just kind of happened for me. So it's Super Bowl morning, and uh, probably the, uh, uh, the Seattle Seahawks and um, the New England Patriots are just waking up. They're going, going to breakfast or whatever. Since I don't know what it's like to feel that way on a Super Bowl Sunday morning, what's that? Tell, uh, uh, tell everybody what that's like. Well, for us, it was, uh, you know, Chuck Knowles had us brainwashed. Uh, you probably don't know that. I mean, Chuck was a psychologist in his own right. Chuck had us thinking the week before the game that the game was over with and we had won it. So for us, it was a very loose environment. Um, he didn't call it a game. Uh, after he gave his pregame speech, he would say, okay, guys, showtime. So we thought it was a show. We had no idea that it was a Super Bowl. But, but I think the key is that we were very confident and Chuck, you know, you know, that's philosophy, where the snake head goes, the body goes. Right, yeah. Well, Chuck was very confident and almost godly arrogant, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, in his coaching approach. So we were relaxed and just, just waiting to bring it back home. You know, something that, that came to mind is, I mean, one of the things when you practice against, like you practice against Swan, uh, Swanee and Stallworth and great players, uh, I practice against Joe and Elsie yeah. and Dwight. Man, I mean, it, games were like oh. a, picnic a picnic compared to practice. Oh, it was easy. Yeah. I mean, it was so much fun, you know. Uh, and I guess we had so many, so, so many great athletes, and because of that, game day was 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 for the picking. Really, it was. So it's the 40th anniversary of Super Bowl Nine, and you told a great story in the first two services. Uh, uh, about uh, what it was like in the tunnel prior to the Vikings were a veteran team, you guys were a young team, what was that like? Yeah, we were babies and you can imagine, uh, we're in the tunnel right before the introduction and we're standing there with the Minnesota Vikings who were really our college and high school heroes. And we're in the tunnel, I mean, it was so quiet. And as a matter of fact, we had a 12th man fear at that time. So we're standing there and we, would, we wouldn't look at them because they, were, they looked tall, they looked bigger, but they all had beards. It had been raining prior to the, I mean, during the, uh, the warm-up, and they had this water in their beards, and they looked like real Vikings. So now, <laughs> we were really afraid of these guys. And it's so quiet, so Glenn Edwards, our free safety, the last guy to be introduced, he's standing between both lines in the rear, and we saw him, but didn't know what his beef was. He had his arm folded and just standing there. And eventually, he, in, he uttered a proclamation. And he bellowed out this proclamation, which I can't say here. I tried to clean it up. He kind of informed the Minnesota Vikings what we wanted to do to their posterior uh, within the tunnel. And that utterance sparked a fire in the tunnel. Lambert started spitting out at the mouth. Uh, Green was threatening people. Ernie Holmes spinning around like a dancing bear. And we knew then before the introduction, the game was history. Uh, it, it was over. And that one spark, and we came back, because like I said, we, we were petrified prior to that time. Yeah. You know, you played on that defense with so many colorful personalities. Oh God, yeah. So many great players, tough physical football team. Uh, talk about what those guys were like. Well, I say Chuck was a psychologist, and he had to be, because our defense really was 
divided in half. We had two types of personalities. Uh, I played on the left side. On the left side, it was myself, Jack Ham. You know, Jack Ham was just a great athlete, great linebacker, just glad to be there. Jack liked coming to practice. Elsie uh, Greenwood, I mean, he's a mild-mannered guy, great athlete. Mike Wagner, very studious, kind of quarterback of the secondary. And so those guys, we never ever went to the league office by Pete Rosier for fighting, you know, Monday morning, reviewing film, you kick somebody in the growing area. Not us. When you get past LC, a metamorphosis take place. <laughs> you got Joe Green there, okay? And Joe Green, when they say mean Joe, he's probably one of the nastiest player I've ever seen. I know he, he spit in Dick Buckus' face. Now you gotta heard of Dick Buckus, he's a legend. Joe, Joe don't care. Uh, and, and then when you get past Joe, you got Lambert. Now this guy, he's the guy that you take down any dark alley if you want to come out. I mean, ruthless. Uh, he was so mean, Joe said, no, he don't like himself. So we, we didn't bother him too much, but smart guy. As you matriculate down the line, you get to Ernie Fats home, probably one of the first legendary 300 plus pound guy. Um, and he was the kind of guy that, well, he was the oddball, arrow in the head, the whole nine yards. And what happened, uh, the other three guys kind of kept him at bay. He's strange. Uh, he was coming to training camp, imagine 325, 30 pounds in a, a Volkswagen bug, and he's late. We had camp, he's, not, he's in Ohio. So he's rushing back to practice, and all of a sudden he can't get by this tractor trailer. What he does, he pulls out a 38 shoot the tires out the truck. Now, you can imagine what that brings upon him, you know. So he is speeding for us, Latrobe, Pennsylvania, out of Ohio someplace. Then the state troopers are chasing him in the vehicles and a helicopter. Helicopter comes down on the car, you know, guess what he does? Shoots up in the helicopter. Shoots the guy in the foot, so the helicopter got to go now. <laughs> you know? So basically, Ernie ends up uh, abandoning the car, running through the woods. Now imagine this black guy in Ohio in the woods with a gun, 325 pounds running. So he had to take a break, because Ernie wasn't in shape, obviously. Sitting by the tree, he tells us so he wakes up, and you know, he's surrounded by cops and heard these clicking of guns, you know. And um, so that, we had that character there. <laughs> And yeah, Dwight White, who was kind of a Richard Pryor type joke talking guy, everybody's bothering Dwight. Dwight is questioning everybody's parenthood, including the uh, referees, you know. And you had one guy out of place, Andy Russell. But uh, secondary, Mel Blunt, uh, one of the greatest cornerbacks ever, uh, my homeboy, my friend. He did his own thing. He, we called him Soup for Super. He was Super. But he thought he was a thoroughbred, a real horse. He thought that he could do what he wants to do, and he did. Another guy was Glenn Edwards, who was, uh, had a hatchet. His whole idea was to knock people out. So, so we had a bunch of characters there that Chuck dealt with, but you have to understand, these were all reflection of Chuck's nose personality. So you know what kind of guy Chuck was? Look at those guys. Because <laughs> he knew them, he talked to them, and he trained them. So, you know, it's funny that you say that because Chuck is not a fire and brimstone guy. Chuck is a very cerebral. I would say that Chuck could coach any position. If your defensive back coach didn't show up. So how did he take all those personalities and colorful? How did he coach fats? I mean, that, that must have been crazy. Well, it was amazing watching Chuck. I think Chuck's greatest skill was communication. I mean, he would, Joe Green now, to talk with Joe, he would get a chair 
and slide up in Joe's locker. And like Joe's in the back caged in, you see Chuck's back, he's talking to Green. That was the, the tactic with Joe Green. Bradshaw now, he had to hug him and pat him and say, you okay, you okay, Brad, you all right. You our guy, we love you, you know? <laughs> Ernie Holmes now, he had to take him for a walk around the stadium. So it was amazing watching his different strategies, uh, how he communicate. Him and Dwight White, they played this little game, they played the dozens. You know, the dozens where you crack on each other's mama and sister, your mama got a wooden leg, that type of deal, you know? Uh, and, and, and Chuck was character, but he was smart, and I think what made us great was the fact that he could actually communicate with every player and get us going in one direction. You know, four Super Bowls in six years, what an amazing feat. But one of the things that uh, was obvious about those great Steelers teams of the 70s is they were intimidating. And, uh, uh, and Colby, John Colby always tells the story about that not only were the Steelers team intimidating, but so were the fans. Mm -hmm. And in Super Bowl X against Dallas, he said he'd look out, he was in the bus going into the stadium and he was watching all the fans come and he'd, he'd look at the, uh, uh, at the Cowboy fans. He goes, and they were all wearing designer jeans and $200 cowboy boots and Stetson hats. And he'd say, and then he'd look at the uh, Steeler fans and they're wearing jerseys and hard hats and they're at chanting, here we go, Steelers, here we go, as they're walking in. He told me that the, the Cowboy fans looked so intimidated that he knew they were gonna, that the Steelers were gonna win the game and he said, and that intimidation carried over to the Cowboy team and you talk about the pregame and what that was like. Yeah, even, uh what happened was, as you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers fans, they go in the place and they just run everybody out. They just get so Pittsburghish, they take over. You know, Super Bowl, I mean, there's, you see Cowboys fans going out, but the intimidation uh, that they bring, uh, I think kind of helped. Super Bowl 10, that game also was won before the kickoff. You know, we're standing in the tunnel here, and this time there's an adjacent tunnel where the Cowboys are. And the Pittsburgh fans, you know, they ain't only cheering and yelling, they hanging all over in the tunnel off from, from up top. And Dwight White, you know, he takes an opportunity to direct them, you know, and the chance. And in this process, you know, he looks over and see the Dallas Cowboys. You got Roger Staubach, Tony Dorsett, Drew Pearson there. And Dwight was looking, what are you looking at? And he said, look at their eyes. And their eyes were, had this glassy look on them, so we're looking at the Cowboys, you know, what's wrong? And you know that look, your mother should tell you, wait until your father get home. And when you hear the garage or the door close, that's the look they had. And, and Dwight said, we got him. Again, the game was over in the tone. And, and that was kind of an intimidation factor that uh, we weren't aware of, probably in a subliminal way, but it was there, you know, and obvious, yeah. 72 was the immaculate reception. The Steelers lost to the Dolphins uh, in the AFC Championship game the next week. Chuck Knoll said that uh, we are one player away from the Super Bowl. And, uh, you know, of course, he had Hall of Famer Mel Blunt on the right side at corner, and they said, we need a corner opposite Mel. And so they drafted you in the first round out of, uh, out of Florida State. What was that like for you? Did you feel the pressure? Initially, it wasn't pressure, you know, because... The day I got drafted, I was asleep. I had never heard from the Steelers. I had no agent, you know, whatever. And I found out eight hours after the draft, I had been drafted number one. So, you know, there was no pressure. Uh, the pressure came when I got to training camp. Um, I knew of Mel Blunt and Mike Wagner and Glenn Edwards. 
And I knew they had brought me in for John Rouser, who's a Lombardi um, cast off, but smart, had lost a step. And the pressure came when I got there, Mel Wagner and Edwards would not talk to me. Uh, and rightfully so, number one draft choice, safety cornerback, maybe take my position. So the only guy to talk to me was John Rouser. And I kind of respect him because he said, you're taking my job, but he deposits things in me and really helped me make that transition. And really, so it really wasn't tough uh, in terms of making the transition. You know, when I came to the Steelers, you were one of the guys that I looked up to uh, from a standpoint of not only as uh, a player, but also a man of God. You know, the you and, and Colby and Webby, guys that, that uh, had a, a strong stand for Christ that was very, very attractive, being a Muslim at the time and a druggie and a liar and a thief. Uh, I was going, these guys had something um, that I didn't. Uh, talk about your transit, your faith journey, and how uh, you know your your whole life was. Well, my, my uh, I grew up in the South. You have to understand. I, I grew up in Jim Crow. I grew up in the very segregated South, back of the bus, the whole nine yards. But I think if, if I look at my basic sentiments in my heart, my testimony, it, it, it came out of loss, out of losses in my life. Um, uh, you know, I look back. I lost friends. You know. Um, uh, I've lost uh, loved ones that departed to heaven, you know, to stay there, I guess for the most part. Um, uh, I lost faith in people because um, in, in my time of crisis, you know, uh, uh, people that I thought would be there weren't there. Uh, I lost treasures that were dear. And at the same time, I, I lost a lot of battles because I, I was kind of walking in, in fear a lot of time. But in those losses, what I learned that one thing I never lost, I never lost my, my hope, I never lost my joy, I never, never lost my faith, but I think most of all, I, I learned early, I never lost my praise, and um, because I learned from, from my Catholic school training, I'm not Catholic though, that in my praise, uh, and my mother always told me, God was always near, so uh, it been very, um, I couldn't trust me. You know, so I, so I had to trust something. And growing up in the South in that segregation and going through the whole um, desegregation process at a young age, you needed something to trust. And I found out that uh, I can only trust the Word of God. That's all I had. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of interesting. Um, one of the things that uh, uh, the French philosopher Blaise Pascal said, he said that there's a God-shaped void in the heart of every man, woman, and child that can only be filled by the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we try to fill it with money, success, Super Bowls, drugs, alcohol, et cetera. Um, you said something uh, in the last service that, you, you know, these rings, um, they don't really mean a lot. I mean, they do, but they don't. And because they, those cannot fill the hole that's uh, in your heart. No, they cannot, and, and things can't. And, and, and I guess at an early age, I learned that, um, I guess most of in the civil rights movement, um, when you think about a kid, 12, 13 years old, you're marching, protesting, you got dogs, fire hoses, and all of a sudden you, what do I depend on? Mm-hmm. You know, who, who do I look to? And at those times, you know, you get angry sometimes, because you, you got things going on. If you, if you haven't seen Selma, you go see it. I saw it a few weeks ago, and um, what, what happened in Selma happened in many cities in the South. It's the same thing. So now I'm older looking at it. Um, 
differently. I saw things that I didn't see. I saw danger at age 13 and 14 that I, that I didn't see. But what I did see was the fervent commitment and faith and courage that was instilled in me because, um, like I told you before, my mother gave me a lot of roots and things to how to survive in life, you know. And, and, and what comes out of you is the word that deposit in you. In those situations, um, uh, my mother, when I was 14, gave me uh, scriptures, and when she gave me the 27th Psalm. Mm-hmm. And the 27th Psalm, I read it so many times, she said, before you do anything, and, and, and invoked anything, you make sure you read this, and I have. But, and in those times, that's what comes up. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you, you, you start saying, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? You know, you, you talk about those things. You talk about when your enemy comes upon you. And you talk about the confidence that you have, you know, because God's word is in you, and that's what sustains you. Mm-hmm. Because I learned... Uh, at a Catholic school I went to, uh, uh, the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament was very instrumental in my early life, from age five to age 14. And first they convinced me there was a hell, and I didn't want to go there. Uh, so I'm trying to find out how you don't go to hell, you know, and, and I knew that it was through Christ, okay? And so, so what happened, I ended up in that process, uh, and once I be, at age six, you know, I'm trying to get my heaven card. And I got it because I didn't want to go to hell. But what I found out through that process, you know, that, and I've learned and cared that I, I had a predicament, you know. I mean, I was a sinner. I was going to bust hell wide open. I realized that I got a problem. I can't save me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, then there was a penalty. It was death. Right. You know, they said, well, you'd never see God because you'd be in hell. Well, I didn't like that. That, that didn't work. But then I realized, you know, as I grew old in Christ, there was a provision that Christ um, made a heck of a substitution, like no other substitution, because he became uh, the druggie, he became the pimp, he became the whoremonger, he, be- he became everything for me, you know, and made that substitution. And the only thing I had to do was accept that pardon. And, and because of that, you know, accepting that pardon, I, I became very dependent. I became afraid to not have God in my life. I never let him out of my life, uh, never. In college, you know, people say, well, I left God. No, I was too scared. Uh, and, and, and I guess my mother kind of ingrained that when I started dating. When I was in high school, started dating, when she would say, hey, why don't you bring the little missus by or whatever. And then if she didn't like her, what she'd do, she would plant a seed that just screwed up the whole date. She, she would ask me, uh, where are y'all taking Jesus? Where are we taking Jesus? Well, I just kind of killed the whole thing, you know. You know, I, I hadn't planned on taking Jesus, you know. And, and, you know, that was the day of the micro miniskirts and stuff. No, Jesus wasn't involved in this plan. But it resonated, as you can imagine. Great coaching tip for parents. Uh, yeah. When your kids are going out the door, hey, where are you taking Jesus tonight? Because he's going. Because he's going, yeah. I mean, you know, when Jesus uh, lives in us, he is with. And that's a great coaching tip for us as well, that God is, God is with us. And, you know, I love what you said, JT, because when, when Jesus hung on that cross 2,000 years ago, he took on the sin of the world from eternity past to eternity future. So every sin that was committed, he was that on our behalf. He was our substitution. 
And, uh, you know, the, the Bible says that uh, all men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not some, that's not most, that's not everybody but Mother Teresa. That is everyone who is born into this world is born into sin. And that sin separates us from God. For uh, It says in Romans 6.23, for the wages, in other words, what we earn. Because when I was a Muslim, I thought that if you were a good guy, that God graved, graded on a curve, that if your good outweighed your bad, oh, yeah. that, that you were in, which makes it a tough life to live because you're never sure where you stand. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that sin separates from us from God. For the wages, in other words, you earn is death, not just physical death. We all die physically, but spiritual death and eternal separation from God. But the good news is that the gift of God is Christ Jesus. So our salvation is bought. Uh, it was kind of funny. The, the, yes, uh, last night someone came up because uh, we asked the question, if you died today, where would you spend eternity? And uh, this young woman said, I, I really don't know. But the Bible says that if you confess with your tongue and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and God has raised him from the dead, you are saved. If you accept that gift of, uh, of salvation, you are forgiven. All your sins are wiped away. He says, I, I remember your sins no more as far as the east is to the west. What a great promise that God would leave heaven and walk this earth and die a horrible death on our behalf. I agree because, you know, you know they say that Christ on the cross, he could have come down. They said that if he would have blinked his eyes, 10,000 angels would have been dispatched. That would have been me. I'd have been a blinking fool. I, 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 I wouldn't have died for all y'all. You know, I would have come down. But, you know, I, I think in terms of the Christian faith, which you have to look at, you know, people think they got free will. And I, I came to the conclusion years ago, our free will is limited. When it comes to God, you know, God exists for one thing. You know, he, God got a glory, Jones. He got to get glory. I mean, he, he got, that's what he need. He's like a crackhead, a glory crack. He, he going to get his glory regardless. And I found out that you're going to give God glory regardless. And in my own deduction, I said, well, if I don't, let's say if I accept Christ as my Savior, I go to heaven, I sit on the cloud, eat chicken wings and drink sweet tea, whatever, I'm going to say, thank you, Jesus. He get his glory. But if I decide not to do that, where do I go? I go to hell, right? And when I hit that hot plate down there, the first name I'm going to call is Jesus. So he gets his glory. So, I mean, I figure out then it's best. We don't determine whether we give God, God glory or not. We determine what venue we give him glory from. And... That in itself, I don't, it's too, I don't like hot. I'm warm, I'm warm now. I mean, I can't go to hell. <laughs> Randy, Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, uh, describes heaven using the scriptures, using creation. And, uh, and he, says this, he, he says this about heaven. He, he said, imagine the most beautiful sight you have seen here on earth, whether that's the Grand Canyon or the Rocky Mountains or the Alps or, or whatever. Now times it by a million because it has not been affected by the sin. And so, and then imagine that the one who created it is waiting. And so, I mean, you know, if we, the, the word said, no, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has comprehended what God has in store for those who love him. And so heaven, you know, this picture of heaven that, uh, it's a great book, uh, uh, Randy Alcorn's book. 
Uh, and, uh, and we seek heaven, heaven here, I think, as humans. It, it's the human nature. But, but God has something waiting for us that is so far beyond our greatest expectation that we will be uh, completely awed by it. And I can't wait. And one of the things you were telling me yesterday, too, uh, was um, that uh, uh, coming to uh, out of segregation, really the Steelers initially were, uh, were a segregated, segregated team. Yeah. And Team Chaplin kind of helped change that. We uh, we tend to forget that in the early 70s, uh, you know, I'm less than 10 10 years removed from the back of the bus. A lot of African-Americans coming from the South, you can say our motivation is our manhood, dignity, and acceptance, and professional sport gave us a platform for that more so than professional sport. So the drive wasn't like it is today for money. It it was, was for dignity. So when I came to the Pittsburgh Steelers, it was a very segregated ball club. Uh, the guys, you know, we practiced, you know, and played, but that was it. You know, the white guys went South Hills or Mount Lebanon. The black guys went East or to the city. So uh, you can say, well, how can you win how, as a unit? How can we come together? And really what you don't know is two in- individuals that forged uh, or glue uh, that if they hadn't, we wouldn't have had those four Super Bowls. Uh, one was a guy named Dr. Von Nixon. Uh, what he did, he got inroads into the Steeler organization some kind of way and started having these huge parties at his huge home in Mount Lebanon where he invited all the players and their families after the home game. So now we're playing together, but now we're partying together. So you can imagine getting together on, on getting to know each other uh, during, during that era. Uh, another guy by the name of Hollis Half. Hollis is a minister. Some of you may know Hollis. Hollis started a chapel or Bible study in his apartment in Squirrel Hill. So at the time, it may have been six, I don't know, eight players, if that many, in a small apartment. And that started to grow. And so now, not only are we playing together and partying, we're praying together. And it went to the point where in our chapel services, we had about 85%, maybe 90, including coaches, in this arena. So you can imagine the dynamics of bringing those parameters together, uh, guys that are going to play together, they're going to actually, you know, uh, party together, now they're going to pray together. What that does, it opens everything, but it makes you very vulnerable because now I have to trust you. And if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't have the four Super Bowls or the bond. And, and that was um, very critical uh, to our growth. And and even like even hook touch a Muslim got him, you know, but 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 I think you know those are the dynamics that that made us different that you're probably not aware of, that was a part of uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers that era. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you would love one another, and uh, and that's what I saw uh, back in ninth, in the early '80s, a group of men who loved each other, but most importantly loved Jesus and also loved. Me and invited me to be part of what God was doing on that team, and for that I am eternally uh, thankful. Uh, let's talk about your dad, because uh, I know that is as tight as you were with your mom. You had a, a little bit of a rough time with with your father. Yeah, my, my father uh, grew up in an era where you know uh, hugging wasn't part of the regime. Uh, he didn't have a father. Uh, his mother died when he was twelve, so you got this man here that really don't know how to be a man. And so he can't deposit manhood into me. But, so he was an abuser uh, from the age three or four uh, before I started kindergarten. 
Uh, I'm in the car. He takes my mother to the woods and beat her with a belt. And I'm sitting there, you know, crying uh, as a kid, you know, helpless. And my goal was, well, I was angry, angered, hatred, the whole nine yards. And, and what happened is that I got a plan in my little mind. Uh, he used to have, he was a part-time mechanic, and he would have football players from high school help him move cars, pick up transmissions, etc. So I assumed that if I become a football player, I can get strong and get this dude, take him out. So at an early age, I started watching the Green Bay Packers in the early 60s. And uh, so I watched Herb Adderley, number 26, and number 24. I've only worn those two numbers. And they ran backwards. I thought that was cool to run backwards, you know, for some reason. So I would go out and get my mother's Sunday paper, put it under my shoulder pads and make shoulder pads, and, and run around, uh, you know, the backyard. I'm going to be a defensive back or whatever at the time, a football player to get dad. So as a result of that, um, I continued that. The problem at the Catholic school, we didn't play sports. So uh, I didn't know, had no idea where this is going to go until I graduated from there. We integrated the schools, so now I'm going to the, the integrated schools, and I'm playing football. And my whole tenure there, uh, from the junior high, uh, was to get dad. I go to the 10th grade, well, it was mandatory military. So now I'm walking around with the Army Greens with the M1 semi-automatic weapon. Uh, I'm also <laughs> on the rifle team. I'm five points from a sharpshooter. I'm a marksman. So now I'm about close to six feet. We eyed eye toe to toe, and he recognized that I'm a threat. I'm not afraid of him anymore. So he kind of backed down with his activities of abuse and stuff, because I'm really waiting to take him out. I'm waiting for one wrong move, buddy. You out of here. And after all this preparation and, and setting my mind and my willpower and get my constitution. Guess what he did? He found Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I mean. Now, spoiled it all. He spoiled, he spoiled this whole plot here that I, I spent years working on to get him because college at that time was an option, believe it or not. I mean, no one's recruited me, and the schools in the South had not opened up to African Americans. So I'm 16, 17. I have no idea what I'm going to college. But it shows how God can take my mess, our mess, and turn it into something that is fruitful, you know, uh, for his will, you know, and how he can order your steps in a way that you hadn't even thought about because professional sports was not on the radar at all. I'm trying to take out Mr. Thomas mm -hmm. because he's abusive. But it shows how God, and also my mother prayers, uh, how she was faithful in that, that it was uh, very instrumental in terms of where I am today. God says that all your days were written in my book before there was a, a one of them, 139th Psalm. And uh, uh, it is uh, comforting to know that God is in control. He is a God of reconciliation. And, and the beauty of this, that, that uh, the book of Isaiah says, though your sin is as red as crimson, I will make you white as snow. So think about this, that God would take an abuser, an abusive father, abusive husband, and save him turn them around, and reconcile a family because God is a uh, God of reconciliation. One more quick story uh, as we finish up here. You know, life is short. 
and uh, our next breath is not guaranteed. We've lost a bunch of our teammates yeah. over the last years, and, uh, uh, and I know that uh, when Dwight White passed, it had a significant impact on uh, some of our, our teammates. Yeah, it did. Matter of fact, uh, it started with Ernie Holmes. And when Ernie passed, uh, obviously, he was the first rod out of the steel curtain. That, and, and Dwight was there. And I, Dwight had ironically just buried his father the week before. So it was hidden. But Dwight made him out of everything, even death. He's sitting at the funeral, and at Ernie's funeral. Now, I don't think that Dwight is aware of God was not saved. So what happened, they're playing a song. And Dwight asked me, he said, T, what's the name of the song? He said, can you play it? I said, I used to play it years ago. And the name of the song is that I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. And this song hooked Dwight. Well, Dwight go back to, we go back to Pittsburgh, obviously. And uh, unbeknownst to me, Dwight passed a couple years later. And all of a sudden, Joe Green calls me. Because Joe looking at, wow, what's going on here, man? You know. Uh, but his question was this, he said, did Dwight get in? I said, what do you mean get in? What, did Dwight get in where? You know, I mean, you know, up there, T, up there, did he get in? I said, I don't know. He may have. I hope he did. And I wasn't sure. I, I, but I shared him about the song that Dwight had, you know, asked me about. Well, at Dwight's funeral, his uh, secretary got up and said when Dwight came back, he had bought this song, you know. You know, saying I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. And he, he said, that's all he played. And when she said that, I hit Joe on the knee. I said, I think dog got in, you know. And, but what happened, death always create a, a revival uh, in our lives. And um, unfortunately, years ago, we lost Elsie Greenwood. Uh, now, Elsie was a devout Christian. But that really spent Joe around because basically it was a great loss. But I think the main thing that Joe became very intentional about mortality, about life, and really about who God is and also how dependent he is and has been and has really, uh, I said, Green, you got a backlog. He said, yeah, I got a backlog on my blessings. He said, I'm not going to ask God for anything anymore because I got too many thank yous to catch up on. And I thought that was awesome. Well, maybe you're sitting here today and you don't know the answer to that question. Uh, Mike Webster uh, asked me that question on a flight from Mon uh, on a Monday night game coming back from Oakland. He said, if you died today, where would you spend eternity and how do you know? And the Bible uh, tells us that the, the answer is in Christ Jesus. Uh, once again, what he did on the cross, we could never do for ourselves. And if you don't know that you know that you know, if you come up after the service, we can help you with that question. Because First uh, John says this, that this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this eternal life is in his son Jesus. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things so that you may know without a shadow of the doubt. Now the shadow of the doubt, that's me. That you may know. Uh, so I'm going to ask uh, Kurt to come up and uh, also the pastors and uh, ministry leaders and elders to come up front. And if you have never made that decision, if you don't know where you would spend eternity if you left this place and you took your last, last breath, because life is very, very, very short. And, uh, and we will spend eternity in one kingdom or another. But if you'd like to know 
uh, we're going to ask you to come up front. Now, I'm going to ask you to stand up. And, and, and maybe you're someone who, uh, as, uh, as JT was saying, that you know, maybe someone for, who has been away from God for a while and you want to just come up for prayer. Or maybe you are hurting and there's something going on in your life that you want prayer for. We would love to pray for you. So I'm going to ask everybody to stand up. I'm going to close this in prayer. And then uh, Kurt, Kirk is going to play us a song as we close. Father God, you are an awesome God. And we just praise your holy name. We are so thankful. We think of the cross. We think of the penalty you paid for us. We think of your blood flowing on that cross. And that blood was for us. And that blood cleanses us. Uh, your word reminds us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and, and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, so we pray. We thank you for that. So if there's anybody here, Lord, that doesn't know you, that you would just touch their heart, that you would tug at their heartstrings, that they would come forward. The word says, today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So we thank you so much for uh, this time together. We thank you for JT. We thank you for the ministry of your word. But more than anything else, Lord, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for the love that you show to us in Jesus' name. Amen.